This is The Kicker, a podcast about journalism and media from the Columbia Journalism Review. I'm Pete Vernon. This week, Hurricane Harvey and its aftermath have dominated news coverage across all mediums. From dramatic rescues shown live on the air to first-hand accounts from reporters on the ground, it's been five days of exhaustive coverage. Reporting on natural disasters and the human tragedies they bring is a difficult task for even the most seasoned journalists. So this week, Meg sat down with the Dart Center's Bruce Shapiro, an expert on trauma reporting, to talk about how the media is covering Harvey from the local level to the national scene. I'm Bruce Shapiro, Executive Director of the Dart Center for Journalism and Trauma, a project of Columbia Journalism School. The Dart Center is a global resource center, think tank, and forum for journalists who are covering violence, conflict, tragedy, and their aftermath. So a lot of what we're seeing over the last few days in Houston uh, with regards to the media has been these kind of heroic rescues, um, you know, both where journalists are involved and both directly and indirectly. So I'm just like wondering if just kind of starting off, if you can walk us through what you've been noticing about the media's coverage of Hurricane Harvey in Houston. Sure. A a few things. Well, first of all, let's, I think it needs to be pointed out that um, the, the news media and in particular the investigative journalists at ProPublica and the Texas Tribune Actually, there's a, a, a prelude to Hurricane Harvey, which is that more than a year ago in some astonishing um, investigative journalism, these folks pointed out the crisis that was waiting to happen, pointed out all of the ways in which uh, overdevelopment was um, taking up the prairies that formerly would have absorbed a lot of groundwater in the event of a major storm, pointed out all the ways in which disaster plants in Houston uh, were not prepared for this kind of a major catastrophe. Uh, While this is an epochal amount of rain that probably would have been a problem anyway, we should credit the uh, investigative journalists of the Texas Tribune and ProPublica with laying out so clearly warning of the dangers, just as um, the investigative reporters of the New Orleans Times-Picayune had pointed out problems with the levee system there before Katrina. Um, We get to be the voice in the wilderness, unfortunately, sometimes. Now that the storm has happened, I think, um, let's divide media coverage in two. I think there's the role that local news outlets have played, and then there's the kind of national and international coverage, and then the the role of social media. Um, it, it seems to me that the TV stations uh, in Houston have done a heroic job of staying on air to the extent that they can to communicate crucial information. The Houston Chronicle has done a, a brilliant job of both conveying the reality on the ground and conveying essential information. And, and it should be pointed out that in the middle of a crisis like this, news organizations take on a dual identity. On the one hand, you have your reporters out there, or in this case, reporters whose own homes are at risk or being lost, just as happened in Katrina, out there telling the story of people bearing witness. And at the same time, you have the news organization 
being, as the TV stations are, as the Chronicle is, the trusted vehicle that people go to for official information, for scientific information, for emergency evacuation and shelter information. Now, um, there's there's a federal emergency broadcast system that nobody pays attention to. There are all kinds of ways that information gets out there. The remarkable thing is the extent to which the media, so often blasted as as public enemy number one, in fact remains the trusted source, the frontline source for survival information when the fourth largest city in the country is in crisis. And I, I think the Houston area media have acquitted themselves nobly in this. I personally have been in touch with a number of reporters who, who are friends, who are in some cases stranded in their homes, in some cases out in boats. Now, and, and what have you been hearing from those reporters that you've had contact with on the ground? Well, those who are stranded in their homes are, of course, worried. Um, the folks I've been in touch with are th thus far at least all safe. They're working um, to the extent that power and communication allow them to do so. Um, the reporters who are out in the boats are very aware of um, the, the unprecedented scale of the flooding. And our, you can see the TV reporters, for example, struggling to find the language to describe what it means when a city turns into a floodplain in which uh, the series of bayous that make up Houston really get flooded and you have atolls of dry land surrounded by water filled with hundreds of thousands of residents who are wondering what's next. And of course, reporters are trying to contain their own fear and their own alarm, as all citizens are, as this storm lingers and threatens to dump more water. And reporters kind of know what to do in this first phase. We know how to go out, see what can be seen, find facts, and then the news organizations themselves are collating not only reporting but social media feeds, tweets, Facebook posts, and so on to create a kind of collage of this crisis. Um, you know, national reporting, um, we have seen news organizations um, recognize the unprecedented breadth of this crisis. The, the dropping of paywalls is one small but significant way of doing that. People do rely on national news organizations, too, as a way to communicate with their loved ones to find out what's going on. Um, you have reporters out in boats, um, and in some cases they've been involved in rescues, which I have to say I don't, I don't see a problem with, as long as the reporters aren't just staging them for their own benefit. And I don't think that's been the case. I think anyone who was a reporter during Hurricane Katrina or during 9-11, for example, will tell you that um, it's not a question of journalist or person, not a question of journalist or citizen. Um, we Journalism is an act of citizenship and an act of humanity. So if you're out there and you see someone who needs help, there's nothing wrong with intervening. Yeah, and the, you know the one that people have been primarily focused on was the CNN rescue. You know, it was Ed Lavendera, I believe it was. And you know, people were were you know both praising that, but also you know there's there's some ethical questions involved in that too, right? With you know the question of like the guy not maybe wanting to be interviewed. Give me your hand, sir, and I can try to pull you up. 
How are your arms feeling? Jason, you want to come up here and help? How do you as a reporter, especially live on television, balance the um, need to share the story of what's happening with, while you know, still respecting what these people are going through? Well, I look, in any large-scale disaster or mass shootings or anything like this, there is a tension, isn't there? A tension between the responsibility to gather facts on the one hand and on the uh, and, and to communicate the emotional reality of the situation and on the other hand the extraordinary vulnerability of people who are terrified or numb or who have lost everything or who are fearful for their families it's going to be a judgment call in every single case i do think that reporters need to bear in mind that consent can't be presumed, that people are at their most vulnerable, and if they feel manipulated into being on camera, it may be experienced as a second wound. It may be experienced as a sense of betrayal by the news media as a whole, and it can come back on not only the individual reporter, but on all reporters covering the story, you get anger at, at news media after disaster sometimes because of this. That doesn't mean you don't, that you never do in-person, on-scene interviews. It does mean exercise some caution. Remember, too, that people are vulnerable to feeling shame, that people are uh, bearing all kinds of trauma and distress and are aroused in all kinds of ways, maybe looking for someone to blame. And, it's a problem with live shots, um, and I would. It's a, it's a yellow light. You know, there's not a hard and fast rule. I'm not saying don't ever. Certainly, be very careful about interviewing children, mm -hmm. interviewing anyone else who may be uh, who, who may be psychologically impaired, and know that cons the ability to give consent may itself be impaired by the extremity of people's experience. The question to always ask is, if it was your mother or your brother or your child, how would would you want them to do this interview? That's the question to ask. Going back to the um, local reporting kind of yeah. question where, you know, the people that are on the ground, whether it's the Houston Chronicle or KHOU, they're not only covering the story, but they're covering this community that they're part of. And so how do you balance as a journalist the emotional trauma of seeing something like of this magnitude impact your community in such a in such a vast and you know horrible way while also still doing your job like how do you take care of yourself how do you take care of your colleagues how does one handle their what might be their own emotional trauma while sure. also doing their job well one thing we know both from the experience of journalists in other natural disasters like Katrina or the Haiti earthquake or the Nepal earthquake and from research into first responders is that in the is that a strong sense of mission is really psychologically protective uh, in crisis and in disaster. Um, knowing why you're there and doing the best job you can, um, at this moment, at this adrenaline-packed um, moment of crisis, is, a, is, is protective. Um, if you look at the trauma rates of disaster workers, for example, psychological trauma rates, the rates of PTSD are way lower among disaster workers than in, than in the general population of who are experiencing the same thing. Partly this is training, and training is 
very protective, and partly it's that strong sense of mission. So part of the responsibility of news managers and part of our responsibility to reporter to reporter is to remember why we're there and and talk about it every day. That's protective. I think in the first hours and days of a crisis, it's natural for people to be going 24-7, but soon the need for structure and the need for self-care does kick in, and part of the job of, of leaders becomes to take reporters off and give them a break and, and, and cycle other people in so that people can be there for the long haul. Because here's the reality. This is very dramatic right now. The reality for Houston is that the water will recede, and that's when the story really begins. And local reporters whose own community are affected need that sense of mission, need that sense of resilience, need uh, a reporting strategy that will carry them through the next phase, the immediate aftermath, and then the long recovery. What is your advice for journalists um, covering the situation, you know, in phase two and phase three and what you mentioned before? So I, I, I think as the floodwaters recede and Houston starts to rebuild, we'll go from covering disaster to covering recovery. And that means covering the physical recovery, the economic recovery, and that we sort of know, we think a lot about as reporters. It also means a sophisticated way of covering the psychological impact of the storm. And to know that people, both individuals and communities, are going to respond in different ways. Some people will respond with a search for accountability. And one thing that reporting can do and must do is lay out lines of accountability, both for preparation or lack thereof, for responsiveness or lack thereof. There's that kind of reporting. There's also the kind of reporting that focuses on the needs of children, the needs of survivors and their families, and knows that there's not one single survivor arc, that some people will, in fact, have deep psychological trauma and need a lot of psychological help. A lot of people will be pretty resilient. Some mm -hmm. people may swing between them. There's a need to cover that recovery. There's... And, and there's a need to ask in the longer run, what are the lessons learned for us as a community from, from this? So accountability journalism, human journalism, community journalism all come into play in a major way once the waters recede, as does an understanding of science. It's going to be important for journalists, I think, to ask engineers, to ask psychologists, to ask um, disaster planners, and to ask other communities and even and other nations that have been through this what we've learned. A chance as well to help people in the community tell their own story. And this is often one of the most challenging things for us as journalists. We are the professional narrators. And yet for the survivors of the storm, finding a way for them to tell their own stories and see their own faces and hear their own voices, not just mediated all the time in little daily reporting paragraphs, can be very effective to come. Have you seen that kind of model develop in Houston yet? Or was that something that yeah. came about during Katrina? Is this something that... Well, in, interestingly, in Houston, there was a magnificent 
oral history project that a folklorist at the University of Houston set up called Surviving Katrina and Rita in Houston. People forget about that second hurricane, Hurricane Rita, which actually hit Houston as well as New Orleans uh, immediately after Katrina had left the scene, um, in, in which um, oral historians trained Katrina survivors in collecting oral histories, got a federal grant, and hired them to, in fact, collect narratives from survivors of the storm, who people who um, describe what they went through during the storm, described their exile in Houston, uh, talked about all kinds of things. It's a sort of a story core model, but with professional, professionally trained oral historians. And that archive is an amazingly rich source of information of the kind of unofficial story of the storm. It went to the Library of Congress. Um, so there's expertise in Houston already um, that perhaps can come into play once the floodwaters have receded and the long arc of recovery begins. Before we go on, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey Pete, I have a serious dilemma. I am in need of a really good book. Well, that's convenient because I have in my hand a new fascinating story of America's pioneering broadcast journalist and global adventurer, Lowell Thomas, in The Voice of America. Tom Brokaw calls Voice of America a lively account of a legendary life. So Meg, read The Voice of America, new from St. Martin's Press. Along with delicate situations that we've seen reporters dealing with in speaking to victims of Harvey, journalists also face the challenge of not falling into well-worn narratives that seem to crop up whenever these type of events happen. One of the great media myths coming out of Katrina was this idea that there were looters everywhere, there were roving gangs of criminals, people shooting at helicopters that were there to provide help. And those reports were out there in the media, reported on, talked about on cable news, and there just wasn't evidence to support them. So, Meg, we saw this happen, or at least the beginning of a story like this happen on Tuesday when ABC News reporter Tom Yamas tweeted about looting that he had observed of a supermarket. That drew criticism for perpetuating a kind of pernicious narrative that has its roots in certain biases about race and just the myths that go along with this type of event. What was going on? What was that conversation? Yeah, you mentioned Katrina, and there's a very striking example uh, between two photos that were put out, one by the Associated Press and one by Getty Images. Right. In the Associated Press image, it shows a black man uh, taking food from a supermarket, and that person is described as looting, whereas the Getty image is of a white couple, quote, finding food at a supermarket. And so based on the racial identity of the people in the photograph, the language that's being used is dependent on the racial identity of the people in the photograph. Yeah, and there were some mitigating circumstances around that where each photographer explained what they had seen and why they chose the specific word, but obviously people picked up on that distinction and drew some conclusions that may have been justified in the way that these different people of different races were described. So. I want to get back to this idea that after a disaster, there is lawlessness, there's looting, because one other, a parallel narrative, is about all of the people coming together, opening up their mattress stores, we've seen a bunch of, opening up their mosques, opening up their churches, sometimes late, like Joel Osteen. But there's all of these positive stories about the heroism of ordinary individuals, and that seems to oppose this narrative about 
looting and there were unconfirmed reports and completely unverified reports about people shooting at the Cajun Navy who was there to help. That sort of, I, I keep using this word narrative because that's what is it's expected, but it's often not true. Or at the very least, it is often overblown. The Houston Police Department has arrested, I think the most recent number I saw was 14 people for looting. And some of those were at a video game store, um, you know, not taking, obviously, supplies that people need to survive. But in the midst of a, a disaster like this, should a reporter be pointing out to police, hey, there's people going into a supermarket to get food? That's survival. Right. right. Like it's not looting. It's survival. These, these people have just seen their homes being devastated. Many people are in shelters where they're when they where they have access to food now, but there are still so many that are not. And so what are those people supposed to do to survive the next couple of days, weeks, months? Yeah, I think what we're searching for here is some sort of guideline, which is always tricky in chaotic situations like this. But on a very simple level, right, like understand, have empathy for what people are going through and what they're suffering. And just simply don't be a dick. Right? Yeah, I think that's a really good uh, life motto in general. <laughs> and also, like, I mean, like as a journalist, your job is to get the facts straight and to understand the context. And it seems like with a lot of these reports on looting, there's no understanding of the context, which is that there is a hurricane and a tropical storm. Like, yeah, you're applying the rules of normal society to what is almost an apocalyptic scene. Uh, I just think that you know, maybe this is an honest mistake that Yamas made in the heat of the moment, and we should be empathetic to his position also, that all of this chaos is going on, and he's in the middle of it, but it did play poorly. And he tried to justify it by saying, we were already on the scene with police, I didn't divert them to this, but it just, it was a bad look and one that reporters should be wary of, to, to perpetuating a stereotype that is overblown at best and pernicious at worst. If that was a misstep by a reporter, what we've overwhelmingly seen this week is the best of journalism. There's been incredible coverage that has helped drive attention and really fuel the compassionate response from around the country, and even individual acts of heroism from journalists. I think of the KHOU-TV team who, on the first day of the storm, was out there and spotted a truck driver trapped in rising waters. They flagged down a passing sheriff's deputy who eventually saved the man live on TV. And in cases like that, I don't think anyone would disagree with journalists shedding this supposed cloak of dispassionate observer to jump into action. But we want to talk about another story from this past weekend that drew attention for a journalist getting involved in the story he was covering. Meg, you wrote about this for the site. So can you take us through what happened? So on Sunday, um, there was an anti-hate rally in Berkeley, California. Al Letson, who is the host of Reveal's podcast, Reveal is part of the Center for Investigative Reporting, and his team went to cover the rally in Berkeley. And it was it was a very peaceful event, and it wasn't until a little bit later in the afternoon when a group all dressed in black, I think like 100 of them or so, uh, showed up, and things got a little bit um, chaotic. And Al Letson followed the um, group dressed in black as they were chasing down someone that they thought was a, a right-wing counter-protester. And he noticed to his left that there was another person who was suddenly on the ground. He didn't know the identity of that person who was kind of balled up, but he did see a group of maybe five or six people dressed in black crowding around him and then beating and kicking him. And in like a split-second decision, um, Al Letson decided to jump in the way to shield the man on the ground from further injury. He ended up getting kicked and punched himself. Um, he's fine, but 
the situation does bring up a really great question about when and if a journalist should intervene when they see something like that unfold in a very volatile kind of civic conflict situation. Yeah, and you asked him that, right, about how he decided or if he even really thought about himself as a journalist in that moment. Yeah, so, I mean, for for Al, it was really about being a human first, journalist second in that situation. And oftentimes I feel like that's kind of like a false dichotomy in a way, right? Like you can't really separate your humanity from your journalistic practice. Like you're, you're always a journalist, you're always a human. Yeah, but sometimes those two do butt up against each other, right? right? I mean, I've reported in other parts of the world where there have been mass protests going on or where you're sometimes around people who are in dire need of food, in dire need of shelter or money. And especially as an American in those places, people will say, well, you have money, give me some. I need it more than you do. And what they're saying is true. And journalists in far more dangerous and dire situations than I've been in face the same thing all the time. When you go to a refugee camp or when you're in an area suffering from famine, how do you handle your human instinct to help versus your professional duty to observe and report? I think it's a judgment call. And I also think it depends on the immediacy of the situation and who else is there that should or could intervene. What Al Letson was telling me was that in his situation, there was nobody else who would have jumped in or could have jumped in. And his decision was either, A, I could watch this guy get beaten to death, maybe, or I can do something to stop that. And he was in a position where exactly he could do something could that would have something. an immediate impact. And it did, right? right. The, the group disbanded afterwards. The, the group, as you know, it was he I think he jumped in and then three or four minutes later, Suddenly, everyone just disbanded, and even the guy who who was who had been on the ground ran off. Yeah, this is this is the, an issue for journalists everywhere, whether it's in America or international reporting. Um, and I don't know. I I do think it's tough. There's a famous example of Kevin Carter who won a Pulitzer Prize for his photo in Sudan in 1993 of a starving child with a vulture in the frame behind that child, and He drew attention to a crisis in a part of the world that most people weren't paying attention to. But when that photo was published, he got questions about, well, what happened to the child? And he said, I don't know. And people said, well, how could you see that and not do something? And his response, obviously paraphrasing it, was, I was doing my job. I was reporting on what was there and drawing attention to a situation. So that sort of objectivity in the purest sense is part of a journalist's job. And this, again, happens in war. It happens in any sort of crisis. And I, it's just, you, you frame it as, yeah, humanity versus journalism. I just don't know if it's that simple, if that dichotomy is clear. Well, it's a very blurred line between observer and participant and journalist and bystander. And I think it's a very individual, personal decision. And it's, it gets it gets really difficult when others judge those individuals for those decisions, right? And I think, like, you know, our, our primary role as a reporter is to tell a story. Um, and But if you're going to leap in, it's because telling that story is no longer the morally adequate response, which is something that I talked a lot about with, with Al. And, again, this isn't a new debate, and it's it's going to continue for as long as I can foresee but I think when it comes down to it, it really is a judgment call for that reporter. And like safety should always be front and center. But you also can't control human impulse. 
Right. And in some cases, like a truck stuck in rising waters in the midst of a hurricane, the duty is pretty clear that reporters should do something if they can. Um, it's those other situations where the territory just becomes murky. Okay, shifting gears a little bit for our final topic this week, we get to the New York Times editorial page, which has produced some pretty terrible pieces over the last few days. That's being generous. (laughs) (laughs) On Wednesday, the Times ran an op-ed from Eric Prince, who you might know as the founder of Blackwater USA, a military contractor, arguing for, guess what, the use of military contractors to fight the war in Afghanistan. That same day, it published a piece by new air quotes here, diversity hire, Barry Weiss, praising cultural appropriation. I've got thoughts on this, but hearing you around the office the last 48 hours, I know you've got more, so (laughs) go ahead. Like, what is happening to the New York Times opinion page? I mean, I would argue it's it's been bad for a little while. I just, I feel like it just, it's, it's, I didn't think I could get worse, but it's getting so much worse. Yeah, it's been a bad week. I, I mean... We talked about this a little bit back in the spring uh, with their last diversity hire. And when we say that, I, sh- I guess I should make clear. Diversity in quotes. <laughs> yeah. That we're, and we're talking about ideological diversity and some sort of response to criticism, I guess, from the election. But, I, I mean, the, new, the idea of editorial pages in general is probably worth discussing um, if we had more time, whether newspapers should have them or not. I would argue that they shouldn't. But to the Times specifically... What is going wrong? Why do you say it's getting worse? I mean, so the Eric Prince is is the Eric Prince editorial, or I, don't even, I can't even say editorial. Sponsored ad, content? Advertorial sponsored content. Like you have somebody who founded Blackwater. And now runs right, a different frontier services group, another military contractor. And also is Betsy DeVos's brother. Let's right. like throw that out there. Uh, was basically pitching Trump in on the editorial pages of the New York Times. And we know that Trump reads those. And we know that Trump reads it. And, you know, it's very Brett Stevens, who is a known climate denier. Um, and that was, what, back in March, April? The spring sometime. Back sometime in the spring. And that caused a lot of controversy. I mean, ever since James Bennett, formerly of The Atlantic, took over as the editorial page editor about a year ago, it seems like it's gotten even more out of touch. I didn't think that was possible. But yeah. he's proving me wrong. <laughs> Yeah, I can't say that it's a place I go to find myself stimulated by different arguments. Um, The rest of the paper is often stellar, but when I get to those back pages of the front section during the week or the Sunday review, I mostly skip over those or go there for outrage, and that's fine. And we're going to stop there because we got through this whole discussion without even mentioning David Brooks, so consider that an accomplishment. We'll leave it there. Don't get me started on David Brooks. (laughs) That was our show. Thanks for kicking it with us. Thank you to Bruce Shapiro for stopping by to talk with Meg. And Meg, thank you for being here as always. Thank you for hosting. You can check out all the great content at cjr.org. And to any of you out there in the Houston area, please stay safe. We'll see you next week.